Howdy folks, this is Dan Gross and welcome to Extended Harmony for Outside In Music. Outside In Music is a record label and jazz media company that connects artists to their passionate fan bases. If you'd like to learn more about us, get in touch with us or check out our other podcasts and videos, visit us at outsideinmusic.com. You're listening to Extended Harmony. It's one of our podcasts in conjunction with everything Nick Finzer does for us. And here we try to talk to artists who create original music. We talk about their process, a little bit about their life, and some advice they'd like to pass along to. Joining us today is Tom Christensen. Uh, we know him, I know him, as the saxophonist for Spin Cycle, but he also has a big resume. And yes, he's another Eastman grad. I promise I did not know this ahead of time. We'll eventually curb it. In the meantime, I'm sort of addicted to Eastman grads. But anyway, Tom is a great guy. Spin Cycle's a fun band, and we're looking forward to talking to him today. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. So let's just kind of start from the beginning. You are a native of New Jersey, correct? Actually, I was born in Napa, California. Whoa! So you've yeah. you've gone from one end to the other. So tell tell us about growing up in California. Well, I actually um, actually I grew up in Napa, but I was born in Southern California mm. and then moved north. Um, and I grew up there, um, you know, in the late seventies, and uh, there was a pretty vibrant jazz scene mm. there, um, including uh, Joe Henderson, who lived in mm. San Francisco. And when I was in high school, I took lessons with him my senior year of high school. Wow. Which was really cool. Yeah, my band director knew his girlfriend, so I had an in. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to drive there and, like, hang out and give saxophone lessons to guys. And this was sort of before he, you know, he went before he became – like uh, like that sort of revitalization of his career in the early 90s like he was this was the, you know a period for him that was he was still recording great music but it's just it wasn't in the forefront of the media right uh stuff about jazz so but then you know I I left uh the San Francisco Napa area to go to college at Eastman in Rochester mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I that's why I left, and I wanted to find a really great music school, you know, to go to. Well, Eastman is a great music school, and everyone in Rochester is really grateful to to have it there. But l- let's back up a little bit. Uh, what drew you to jazz and the saxophone to start? Um, well, the saxophone. Um, I was drawn to the saxophone uh, in sixth grade because it was really shiny and cool looking. So, <laughs> you and everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, but then, you know, I, I also, I mean, I played it, you know, of course, and then for a while in school. But then at a certain point, I just sort of identified with it and, and really enjoyed what I could do on it and found that, you know, I had some skill on it and mm. some, some you know, ability to play on it. And then there were some older guys in my high school that played jazz. And so... I kind of admired those guys and I started jamming with them a little bit. And that was fascinating to me, you know, to, to play some tunes with these guys and, and like figure out what, what that was and what improvisation was and how it worked. Um, And then, you know, I just sort of delved into it, you know, more deeply as, as as things went on. And by the time I was a senior, I was ready to, uh, you know, go to college and major in it. Yeah. Would you say that taking, uh, lessons with Joe was one, one of the big influences. I mean, you mentioned, it's funny, I, I just talked to another saxophonist friend of mine, Daniel Bennett, and he always talks, Every I think every interview he mentions 
uh, Chris Oldfield, who's <laughs> the saxophonist a couple years ahead of him, and he jokes that everyone has that story of there's the cool kid that you look up to when, when you're in band. But, I mean, was it kind of having that environment of having other contemporary musicians to play with or was it taking lessons with joe i mean did you even sort of get who joe henderson was while you were taking lessons with him or he was just the dude who taught you sax (laughs) well it's funny because it's a little bit of half and half on that one i mean i i didn't realize at you know at that age Mm. what i was actually experiencing fully i didn't fully realize what i was experiencing so you know i didn't like it was later than that i put it all together like whoa, you know, this guy, you know, titan of jazz, you know, but, uh, but, uh, but I, I knew he was, I knew who he was. And like, like, like one, actually in one lesson, he gave me this record that he had just made an LP that he had made with, um, it was with, um, Billy Higgins and Cedar Walton. Hmm. No, no, Chick Corea. Hmm. And Billy Higgins, I think. And he just handed me the record. He goes, here, I just recorded this. This is like the demo copy of it. And he just gave it Whoa. to me. Yeah. And and I thought, you know, I'm, so I knew at that point, like, wow, you know, here's a guy who's recording with all of these people. And, and so I kind of got it. But, you know, the lessons were, were interesting because he just taught solos. Like he didn't. Hmm. It wasn't like a, a course of study, like now you learn this scale and that scale and you do this and you do that. We just sat down and he started teaching me solos and made me memorize them and learn them by ear. And mm. that was it, you know, just one after another. That must have been um, a kind of a different thing. I mean, going Eastman is such an academic environment. I mean, what was that kind of – how did you make the transition just learning just solos by ear and then having to get into the academic rigor of a conservatory? Well, I, I always had sort of an academic bent. So, I mean, mm. I enjoyed then my whole idea of going to Eastman was to learn everything I possibly could about music in every in every way. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to like study all these different types of music and, and different ways to play the saxophone and master woodwind instruments and everything. So I was on board from the very beginning with just like, you know, learning the craft and the skill <coughs> to play all these instruments. Um, you know, and, and the artistic part too, you know, and the, the solos and the improvisation, but, but I, I wanted the whole picture from the very beginning. <laughs> and did you go to Eastman in mind? Uh, did you go as a jazz major, performance major, education major? I was a, a, a classical saxophone performance hmm. major for my undergrad and a jazz saxophone performance major for my master's degree. Hmm. Yeah. Who did you uh, who did you study with? Who were some of your professors at Eastman? Um, well, Ray Ricker was my main mm. professor, um, mm-hmm. and he was great. He taught me like you know how to play the saxophone. Really, like like I didn't you know he's the guy who said you know taught me really all the stuff that I know and use and theory stuff and saxophone technique and and all that. And he was great or is great. Uh, he's retired, but he, mm-hmm. when he was teaching, he was great at, um, at l- turning out saxophone players that, that were not like carbon copies of each other. He was, he was able to teach people and then let them find their own voice and sound the way they needed to sound. So, you know, that was, you know, Ray was a huge influence and still is. He's a good friend. And, um, and then I studied with Bill Dobbins, mm-hmm. uh, at Eastman at like, improvisation 
and I studied composition and arranging with Ray Wright when he was mm. there. That was going to be my next question. So you you were you were fortunate enough to be there during the Ray Wright years. Yeah, yeah. The Ray, the two Rays, and Bill <laughs> were the three faculty guys. You know. Yeah. So um, can you let's back up a little bit because something you said that was that was interesting. I mean, you, you well, first of all, you just said the big three. I mean, everyone who comes out of Eastman uh, around your time frame m- mentions it's Ray, it's Bill, and then it's their instrument professor. But, but there's something that you said that I wanted to touch on about Ray Ricker's ability to develop unique saxophonists and fostering the ability to have people develop their own voice. So for you, uh, can you tell us about your period of trying to find your voice as a saxophonist? And I know that this is a, a lifelong journey, but I mean, you mentioned it when you were at school that this was this was something that you learned and you, you were figuring out. Can you sort of tell us what it was like finding your sound, some other players you identified with and some goals you were striving for? Um, well, I mean, I'm still in that process, you know, of trying to, you know, say something in a way that's not terribly derivative, you know. But, I mean, Eastman was a time for me of, like, gaining vocabulary and technique and learning players. And, you know, so I, I transcribed a lot of solos at that time. And I was really into, um, I was really into you know, like, Sonny Stitt and Dexter Gordon and Gene mm-hmm. Ammons and guys like that on the tenor when I was there trying to really gain some, like, jazz, like, you know, core jazz vocabulary, bebop vocabulary. And then playing in Rochester – with guys like Mike Melito and mm. um, Bobby Blandino and uh, you know all you know Danny Vitale and all these all these guys Joe Romano all these guys that were in town like going on the gig and playing with those guys and learning that sort of central vocabulary and then you know and then and then later when I was in my master doing my masters there I really was influenced by Dave Liebman and mm. and that sort of stuff. So I kind of got into the chromatic, you know, Breck or Liebman stuff later then. Um, and, and I studied with Dave and, um, you know, I still do some gigs with him every now mm. and then with his big band. Um, so, you know, I mean, I kind of had that progression there. And, you know, the whole time just kind of following whatever I was interested in musically. It sounds like you've had a lot of opportunities to play with some great musicians. I mean, this is a common thread of every musician. It's not just that, oh, well, you can study and you can practice all you want, but you had a great core of musicians to play with. I mean, it kind of, it sounds silly in a way that you had, you know, when you were in high school, you had other great players to play with, but you were fortunate to have that continue into into the one of the great periods of rochester musicians i mean it seems like every 10 15 years there's a there's a new crop of like oh those are the rochester guys you know whether it's gad or Locke, and then you know a little bit more recently you're talking about melito vitale romano so can you tell us about some of those gigs what what was it like (coughs) playing with those guys what were some of your old haunts in rochester oh gosh now i gotta remember them but um (laughs) Let's see. Well, the thing was is that like like Rochester's always had a really strong tradition of music and jazz coming through there. There's there's um clubs uh that guys talk about um 
yeah, there used to be some place on Monroe Avenue. It was, I think it was called the Glass Onion when I was there. It was a, like a rock club, but it had been a jazz club before that. And I don't remember now what it was called, but like Miles Davis would play there regularly, mm. Cannibal Adderley, mm. Gene Ammons. I heard about all these guys playing in Rochester. And throughout my the time when I was in Rochester, which was basically the 80s, you know, mm-hmm. what, there were clubs in Rochester where people would come up and play in town. And, and um, there were like um, – there, there was a place near Eastman called the Tux Lounge hmm. um, it, that had like – I don't know what it is now, but it was sort of just down the street from Eastman on, on Main Street – and there, they would have organ trios in there all the time. Hmm. You know, a guy playing playing organ and walking the baseline with his with the pedals and a drummer and a tenor player. And I, you know, the drinking age was eighteen, so I, you could just go over there and hang out. You know, yeah. um, but then there was a place. Um, there was a place over on, um, on, I can't quite remember where it was now, off of Goodman maybe somewhere, called Foggy's Notion hmm. that, that that had jazz. And I remember going down there and some other clubs out of town a little, well, not a little out of central Rochester a little bit. Um, and I, I just remember going out and like hearing about Joe Romano and going out and saying, wow, I got to hear this guy and going out and then sitting in with him. And he was very receptive, you know. To, to, to letting guys sit in and, and, you know, if you were, you know, if you were respectful and you wanted to learn from him and what he was doing, then you were cool. And he, and also, you know, it was a chance to learn tunes too. So like at that point I would go on the gig and he would call a tune I didn't know. And it was probably a really common standard, but I was just young and didn't know it. Yeah. And I'd write it down and, you know, and learn it. And so then, you know, it, it was like a chance to hear, to be in that environment um, where you would learn all, all what it means to be a working jazz musician. Whereas at Eastman, it was a more concentrated a study of, of certain things in a, in a more academic way, but like not, I don't mean that in a bad way. It mm-hmm. was great to have both, you know, but it was definitely valuable to go out into Rochester and like hang out with these guys. And I'm forgetting people's names, you know, cause we'll there get it was, in post. We'll, we'll, Put, create a little subscript for it and you can send me everyone's names and it'll just go across the yeah. screen so we're not forgetting anybody. Yeah, because a lot of those guys are still there. That's right. You know, and you, know. you you mentioned it perfectly. It's you you were able and a lot of the great musicians were have been able to both be in the academic environment where you can take things in a more academic and scientific approach and and you can learn and you can study, but then there's also the practical side of it too. And now that you're a little bit older and you're a little bit removed from Eastman, how do you look back on that time and how formative it was and how important it was that you weren't just able to have one or the other thing, that you were in an environment where you could learn and grow and have both of those opportunities available to you? Oh, it was really, really important. And I, you know, I, I, I think that's, that was one of the great things about the school being in Rochester is that you had a little bit of that feeling that the kids like in New York now, like students who go to Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard have New York to like go out and explore. And at that time, Rochester had a little bit of that, you know, mm-hmm. there were clubs along um, uh, Goodman Street around Park Avenue too. There were two or three clubs in there that people would be playing at simultaneously. 
So you mm-hmm. could go hear someone at, you know, JP's Marble Bar and then hear somebody else at Lloyd's. And I actually played like every weekend in the summer at this place called Lloyd's, which I don't know what it is now, but mm-hmm. it's a bar, you know. Right. So there was a chance to have steady gigs, too. Right. Very important. Not as much of that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I move. know. It, well, it, it's it's the life we it's the life we all chose, you know. We it's because yeah. we love it. Uh yeah. moving on a little bit past going beyond your college years, you have some great stuff on your resume. You mean you mentioned Joe Lovano, but you've played with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. I, I love this. You put in here cheap trick. Aretha Franklin, not too far away from the John Hollenbeck large ensemble. So moving on from college, and so we're, we're going to kind of divide this up between um, pre-spin cycle and then spin cycle. So let's talk a little bit about pre-spin cycle. What were some of the projects you were doing when you were right out of right out of school? How did you get those opportunities, and, and what did it do for you personally and for your career? Um, well, I mean, a lot of that stuff comes from me moving to New York and just coming down here and taking any kind of gig that I could get mm-hmm. to pay the rent and, you know, thankful for it. So, you know, I when I came down here, I was yes to as, as much stuff as I could, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's where the eclecticism of that list comes from, <laughs> Um you know that you know in New York. You know that there's a lot of musicians and a lot of things happening. So there'll be, you know, the same guy that um, will hire you for a Broadway show might hire you for this concert over here, and then mm-hmm. and then you know you play a a wedding with this one guy, and he happens to be in the the Vanguard band, and he asks you to play with the Vanguard band the next week or something. You know, mm-hmm. so like that's that's how those things happen. So it's a weird mix of like suddenly you're you're playing this sort of stupid wedding gig and then like a week later you're in the vanguard you know yeah. you know and then maybe you're playing with like john hollenbeck and then the next week you're doing the gig with the cheap trick you know so that's like there's like there's in new york has that sort of thing and um i mean i'm not like a kind of guy who just does all that stuff all the time but mm-hmm. but um but that's what it's like living down here and what it, what it, especially it's like when you're younger, cause people don't have you, you know, sort of said, Oh, he's a, this guy, or he's a, that guy, you know, and you're young. They're just like, okay, that guy, we heard that guy was good. Let's see. We need somebody quick. Let's get him, you know, right. or, or whatever. Have um, you been typecast yet? Have you found that that's been happening or have you still maintained the versatility? Um, no, I think I've been, I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to say that. I mean, I think I, I've, I've made an, uh, a conscious effort to be, to be more of a jazz player. So like, I mm-hmm. wouldn't be the first call guy for like a rock and roll gig or anything like that. And there's plenty of guys that can do that a lot better than me. And and then that's the other thing about New York is that there's always someone who specializes in just nails it. So, right. you know, you, you can't be a jack of all trades and, well, there are some guys like that who mm. who are just that talented, but few like, and far between. Few, yeah. I mean, usually people kind of slide into one area, and the older you get, the more you slide into one or the other areas. So, I mm. mean, if that's typecasting, yeah, I think that's happened to me in a certain way, but not in a negative way. It's just that, you know you wind up kind of doing what you do and what you're best at, and you kind of get into that, you know. And it's it's funny that we're uh, talking about the, this this balance between okay, well, you're a jazz player, but you're also a, a versatile player too. One of the things that 
I enjoy about Spin Cycle, and I know uh, Downbeat also enjoyed this about uh, the 2016 self-titled album, uh, is that it's both one thing and a lot of things, but you wouldn't listen to Spin Cycle and say, oh, that's a fusion group that takes A, B, and C and does D with it. I think what's fun is that in each tune and throughout the recording, there's enough of a common thread between everything where it doesn't feel like you're jumping or there's no continuity. But, I mean, it it sounds corny. I mean, you can read the description on the website. It has a single song might contain influences, I'm quoting here, from modal, Coltrane, introspective, free jazz, New Orleans funk, or the no-holds-barred energy of punk. But it sounds silly, but it's true. You can listen to a spin, slide, spin cycle concert, and, and you get all this stuff. And, and so I think it's just funny that we we talked about, you know, what does it mean to be typecast as a musician? Are you typecast? But spin cycles, all of these things. So can you tell us about uh, how you met your co-leader, uh, Scott Newman, and how spin cycle came about? <coughs> Um, well, um, I have actually met Scott is, almost as soon as I moved to New York. He, um, the, uh, a lot of musicians in New York will get together in someone's apartment during the day and play tunes with a, with an just a. It's kind of an invitation only thing. So there'll be like mm. you know, a sax player, a trumpet, piano, bass, drums, maybe a guitar player, and these you know six guys. So let's get together and play tunes on Tuesday afternoon. So the very first one of those that I ever did in New York was at Scott's apartment. Mm. Um, and he, um, you know, we had a bunch of mutual friends and, um, you know, we, we played, um, and, uh, it was great. And then I got a band together that was sort of an early iteration of my two woodwind group Mm -hmm. and Scott played in that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then, kind of a weird thing happened is that we, we got, um, he and I found out that we both had a love of the outdoors and of backpacking hmm. and, and the camping and stuff. And so we wound up then maybe in the mid nineties doing a, a and, and in, into the two thousands doing a ton of backpacking all over the country hmm. and, and all over the Northeast, especially. And, um, and, and then we both um, started families at the same time. Our daughters hmm. are about the same age and good friends and um, so we just had a lot of stuff in common. So we had all that going and, and we and were both looking for a new project. It was really Scott's idea. And he said, man, do you want to co-lead a band? Which um, I thought was a great idea because it, it's really a lot easier and more fun when you do that with another person. Because, uh-huh. you know, the, the burden of booking gigs and the financial burdens and the everything else don't rest solely on one person. It's, you know you can share that burden with another person and it's like a 50% off sale on everything. (laughs) So so it's great, you know, and, and, and I really enjoy working with him. He's a great friend and a, a great guy and a great musician. So, you know, that's where that comes from. And and the eclecticism of the band comes from really from our experiences as, you know, children of the seventies and eighties when, you know, jazz was, 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 um, 
there wasn't, you know, that strong straight ahead scene that was just coming in. And so there was a lot of jazz could be all these millions of different things. And there was a lot of rock influence and things like that. So, you know, we're not, you know, opposed to like throwing in that, you know, some, some funky elements and different things and, and trying not to pigeonhole things too much. So there's some straight ahead stuff. And then there's that like punk surf rock tune that we have and right. you know whatever, you know, funky things here and there. We'll come back to that in just a sec. I want to expand on that a little bit more, but can you tell us about how uh, Pete and Phil, so it's Pete McCann on guitar and Phil Palumbi on bass. Can you tell us mm-hmm. how they joined the band? Yeah, we, I mean, Scott and I talked about who we wanted and both of those guys were our first choices. So, hmm. both you know, of them were first choices for both of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, after our conversation, you know, we were like, who do you want on bass? You know, Phil is, you know, I played with Phil and Phil's got like really a perfect way of playing that fits with Scott. Mm. And, um, and he's a really, uh, both Pete and Phil are really strong, mature musicians. And we wanted a band of four guys who could, were not shy about doing what they do. So, um, that that was one thing, and and Pete too, of course, is a master of all different sounds and yes, he is. styles. Yeah, so and and he's strong too. So we wanted the band to be four really strong musicians. Mm-hmm. So um, that was you know that was part of the part of the thing. Yeah, um, that we had. And you you keep mentioning. I mean, when you start off, you wanted it to be quote a project, and jazz musicians, of course, have projects going all the time but then after that you start using the word band and not a lot of musicians have the opportunity all the time to have a band i mean you can be a career sideman but it's also i'm sure it's nice for both you and you and scott to kind of zone in on something and say okay what are we doing for the band i want to write this for the band it must be sort of a grounding experience I and mean, trying to do all of these different things but then knowing that you kind of a band to come to, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is accurate. You know, I mean, I guess it starts as a project because you're going to kind of see how it'll go and see Mm -hmm. how it'll work and see what'll happen. But then as you, you know, as as it develops now, it really is a band. And especially after this last tour that we played uh, where we played the Bob shop, it Mm -hmm. really, it really, especially the Bob shop gig, actually, it really felt nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we're a band, you know. That's right. Yeah. Um, so one thing that you, you before we go into our, our sort of last couple big picture questions. Well, here here's a big picture question. You mentioned growing up in, in the 70s and 80s where jazz could be a bunch of different things. And I think there's this sort of um, ethos around jazz where... Jazz is really sort of the only genre that takes as much time as it does trying to define what it does. And mm-hmm. there's this sort of interesting disparity between always trying to define what it is and just playing it. And you guys seem to be of the mindset of just playing. I mean, was this something going into you wanted to do? I mean, I don't, I'm sure no one decides ahead of time that they're going to be revolutionary or going to be a a contrarian but for you guys did you just decide you know we just want to play see what happens we're going to write some tunes and figure it out or did you make a determination no tune is going to be the same we're going to combine all this different stuff 
we basically the first album we just got a bunch of tunes together that we thought would work together we and we didn't have any guiding like principle it was like well let's do something that runs uh in the opposite direction of a certain trend or mm. let's do something that let's make a concept for the album where there's this 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 and this it was more like what tunes do you have what tunes do you have where let's see where we are with these and we put them together and um you know and and it just wound up sort of being a natural extension of the way we were thinking at that moment the mm. second album which is going to come out in april called assorted colors mm. is is a little i think is more cohesive i think there i don't think we swing as far in extreme directions but we still do you know we still have a lot of different kinds of styles on the the album but i think we're sort of honing in on what the band really does well and what what we feel you know speaks or, or how we, we speak best what type of tunes we speak best through yeah well, um, we're gonna look forward to hearing hearing that in the in the coming months and next year i want to uh get you out here we got two more little items we got to clear up the first one is a big picture question i like to ask my guests and listening to this i'm sure Anyone can can glean specific things from what we've discussed, but if you had to pass along one piece of advice to any aspiring artists, what would it be? Hmm. Wow. That's a one piece of advice. That's um. Enjoy what you do, hmm. and don't and try not to worry what people think about what you do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Just that's the big one. Yeah, enjoy it. It's only music, and and it's it's beautiful, and you know, it, trying to define it or or too much or or pigeonhole it, I think, is a mistake. So, I mean, enjoy it. Life that's, is short. That's true. All right. So to end the podcast, we always play a track from the band so people can hear about it and then okay. hear it. So, is there any track from Spin Cycle, the album, that you'd like us to play? Um, gee, I actually hadn't thought of a specific track. I mean, you know, one, one track that we still play a lot is the first track on the CD and that's Rainbow Shoelaces, which is one of Scott's tunes. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I guess you could play that. It's, it's kind of a, it's an example of what we've been talking about. There's a, yeah. it's, it goes from a straight ahead kind of free or netty sounding uh, like Ornette Coleman sounding mm -hmm. four four thing. It's got some mixed meter going between four and three, and then it has a seven four funk section in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know the band sort of goes through that. It gives everybody a chance to play and interact. Um, it's and it's interesting also because it's a tune that we we played. I think on our very it was the last tune of our first gig. And it was originally all a funk tune, and I played it on soprano. And the first gig, I just messed it up like it was a total disaster. And 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 I don't know what what happened, but um, then Scott like listened to the recording of the gig and brought and he brought it back in. He changed some things, made it you know different feels and different things, and played it on tenor. And we played it, and and then it, now it's a tune that we 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 played um, we've played on i don't know if we played it at the bop shop but oh we did might have been the first tune i'm not sure but um but we still play it. it 
yeah and it, it kind of like it's it's you know it's a great tune for that reason it, it just demonstrates all the different things the band can do it's an example of how the tunes evolve in rehearsal and on gigs <clears throat> and um it's a great example of scott's writing too because mm. uh, we he and i have different kinds of kinds of writing styles great all right <clears throat> tom thank you so much for your time man really appreciate it you're welcome dan it's been great talking to you
Thank you.